0: Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today because I'm speaking with the author of a fascinating book, a really important book just published by Cambridge University Press in 2023 titled Redefining Ceasefires, Wartime Order and State Building in Syria which does a number of things. Um, I think perhaps from my point of view, most importantly, the book really examines ceasefires. What do we mean by them? And perhaps more importantly, what should we mean by them? What should we better understand about what a ceasefire is, how it works on the ground, um, using the case study of Syria to examine all of these complexities? So I'm very pleased to have the author with us today, Dr. Marika Sosnowski um, has joined us. Marika, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast.
1: Such a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for the invitation, Miranda.
0: I'm glad you said yes. Before we dive into the book, though, would you mind introducing yourself a bit and explaining why you wrote this book?
1: Of course, sure. Um, so, yeah, I'm a, a research fellow at Melbourne uh, University at the law school there at the moment. Um, I Also in Australia, I'm based in Melbourne, so in Australia we usually start anything that we do kind of in a public way by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the lands where, we're, where, where I am, which is the Wurundjeri people. Um, and I think that's, uh, you know, in the work that I do on conflict that I feel like that acknowledgement is really important just to centre my own thoughts um, and hopefully the thoughts and um, feelings of the audience in terms of um, how conflict and state violence affects uh, civilians and people. And that's a, a thing that definitely comes out in the work that I've done for my book and that I want to really centre that in my work. Um, this, this book um, and this research came about, uh, started in about 2013, when I was working on a development project, actually, um, which aimed to support what was then called the moderate uh, opposition in Syria, develop systems of governance um, in the north and south of the country. Um, and we would talk to Syrians uh, that were part of that project um, who we were setting up uh, courts, we were setting up uh, local governance initiatives like local councils and police services and stuff like that. And we would talk to Syrians about how those initiatives were going. Um, and they would say, they're going great until Assad comes over and bombs us and then basically everything falls apart. So that got me thinking that if we could, if there could be a ceasefire for a period of time, how might those uh, th- those local governance initiatives develop further? And so that was the kind of the question that spurred uh, the research uh, for the book. Um Yeah, and it was kind of a basic question, but then obviously like any good research project, that got very much problematized and um, made much more complex when I started to look into that empirically in the Syrian case.
0: Thank you for giving us that introduction and background. It's always really helpful to kind of know how people come to books and very not surprised to hear that once you started, um, things evolved from there. Um, Can we start, I guess, with not just context about sort of how you came to the book, but sort of context about ceasefires more broadly. Why do we need to redefine what we mean by ceasefire?
1: So ceasefires until fairly recently uh, have only really ever been considered as a way well primarily as a way to stop or halt violence for a period of time that's basically the modus operandi of the ceasefire and uh, i mean a lot of different well, ceasefires and we're seeing that in the gaza conflict now they're kind of called a lot of different names they can be called a humanitarian pause or a cessation of hostilities or uh, might be called a ceasefire or um, what else have they been called like a, a humanitarian truce or you know all these kind of different names but basically the uh, <laughs> The, the, the idea behind them is the same, and that is to stop violence for a period of time. Um, and But what I found actually in my research was that while they might do that um, for a little while or for a longer period of time, a lot of other things uh, go on within that space that the ceasefire creates, what I call like wartime order that the ceasefire creates. So those things that happen in that space that I found are things like, Uh, governance uh, local governance or rebel governance uh, dynamics can be reconfigured in different ways Um, rights to citizenship and property can be changed and challenged um, and then dynamics normally considered the purview of the nation state like diplomacy and security control uh, they can kind of change and be rearranged
0: as well so
1: yeah so there's a lot more to ceasefires other than just stopping violence basically
0: Yeah, no, that makes um, a lot of sense. Obviously, I have a I've read the book already, so I know how this plays out in the examples um, we're going to walk through. But before we get into the case studies there anything farther you'd like to say about how you define ceasefires?
1: I think the way I'm trying to define them as this sort of particular type of war or a renegotiation or a particular moment where uh, order is renegotiated and that things can happen um, within that period of order. So basically trying to broaden, broaden what people think about when they think about what, what a ceasefire, uh, what is a ceasefire and what can it affect basically.
0: Got it. Okay. That makes sense. Um, and, and I mean, it sounds so sensible, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> but that's why we need the book to kind of make that claim and go, hang on, let's really look at what this looks like in practice. So I'd like to turn to that bit of the book, the case study section, if you don't mind. Why the Syrian civil war as your case study to examine what a ceasefire is?
1: Sure. So, like I said, the, the, my work in the development sector w- was quite a lot on Syria. So that's what got me interested in using the Syria using Syria as a case study in the first place. Um, and I think Syria is a really, or the Syrian revolution and the subsequent civil war, um, it kind of combines a lot of elements that have become part of modern warfare i think in a way so it's got you know it's um an internationalized um conflict where it's got lots of different actors involved you know russia the us lots of different arab states involved um it's you know a lot of targeting of the civilian population um, all these kind of different elements that make up Uh, you know, the so-called new wars. So I think in many ways um, Syria has lots of the elements that other uh, wars, so we can use Syria, it's a good example to draw um, uh, lessons from that we can now apply to other other wars like even what Russia is doing in Ukraine or what's happening in Gaza as well now.
0: And I think we'll get to kind of how this applies beyond Syria um, towards the end. But let's go in to um, the Syrian side. Can you talk us through kind of in practical terms, some of the other areas of a conflict that can be impacted by ceasefire? I know you've kind of given us a small example already, but perhaps to kind of make this more real to people, what what else are we talking about here um, practically? When it comes to ceasefires,
1: sure. So one of the one of the sort of most vivid examples that I can give you from the Syrian context is sort of the rearrangement of citizenship rights. Um, that so these happened as a result of what were called initially local truces and then kind of morphed into being called reconciliation agreements in the Syrian context. And these were agreements, yeah, basically that were forced on different rebel-held communities by uh, the Syrian regime, uh, often with Russian help and or, or Russian support, um, and now in many cases just by Russia. Um, so basically, what would happen um, in many of these uh, reconciliation agreements was that. Um, A community like Daraya, um, just outside of Damascus, or uh, Old Homs would be sort of surrounded and besieged by the Syrian regime, and then it would be bombarded um, until basically the community there had little choice other than to accept the terms of whatever ceasefire agreement was being offered uh, by the regime at that stage, Um, so really, they weren't sort of there weren't ceasefires that that involved sort of what we normally think of as ceasefires, as in like elements of negotiation or compromise, or that they were sort of really beneficial or positive. They were really um, these kind of strangle contracts that uh, communities were forced into, um, at the at, you know under under vast amount of duress. And basically there was a specific term in these agreements um, that required people in these communities what was called, uh, what sort of can be translated into English as to settle their status. And what that meant in practice, it kind of sounds quite benign in a way, but what that meant in practice was um, people that were involved in not just uh, the armed uh, rebellion in that area, but in the political governance of that area. So these could be people from local councils, uh, people that sort of somehow activists that had agitated against the regime, um, you know, activist journalists, um, things like that. Those, everyone in the community had to settle their status. But in practice, if you couldn't settle your status and basically all those people that I just mentioned um If they tried to settle their status, they would have been arrested by the regime and then detained and imprisoned and all that entails in Syria, which is not a very nice uh, picture. Um, So instead they were basically forcibly displaced via uh, green buses that people might have, your listeners might have seen, pictures of, forcibly displaced to Idlib mainly um, under the terms basically of these so-called reconciliation agreements and and in that way they were basically um, sort of rejected from the state and their citizenship was called into question based on their political, their perceived or real political loyalty. And basically in Idlib, they don't have any real rights vis-a-vis, any real citizenship rights vis-a-vis the Syrian state now.
0: So this brings up the very good point that there are many types of ceasefire, um, and we cannot just kind of assume that they're all the same and therefore have the same effects. Helpfully, you have created a typology of ceasefires, which is incredibly useful for figuring this out. Can you walk us through it?
1: sure sure so I won't go into like tons of detail in terms of the different um types in the typology but what I want to say is uh yeah so there's it's a it's a two by two uh square framework so there's four different types um in the typology and what it I developed the typology through a reading of about 180 or 200 different ceasefires taking taken from a database of ceasefires compiled by uh, the University of Edinburgh and Their PACS data set, and then basically classified them along two dimensions. So the first one was um, the power diet, the power sort of dynamics or the power disparity between the parties uh, to the ceasefire agreement and whether that was symmetrical or asymmetrical. And the second um, axis of the typology was to do with the ceasefire, the text of the ceasefire effectively, and whether that text of the ceasefire was had detailed terms, um, or whether they were really vague terms. So, I'll just talk it through just a little bit so you get a bit bit of a better sense. So, for example, um, um, sort of the symbolic ceasefires, um, the ceasefires where the power disparity is really symmetrical and the terms are really detailed, so um, or what I what I call substantive ceasefires, that's just a descriptive name. So, for example, the text of these ceasefires can kind of have um, troop delineation or, you know, how far apart troops need to be in metres, where they need to be located on certain roads, um, you know, from what hours they need to be in their barracks, you know. So the, the text um, of these sort of what I label as substantive ceasefires um, is really, really really specific in comparison with what I I call um, can be um, symbolic ceasefires, which where the text, um, where the the power disparity between the parties is really quite asymmetrical in comparison. comparison. And then the text of these symbolic ceasefires is really vague. So um, in the book, I think one of the examples I give is this sort of uh, a, a ceasefire that was uh, for in the Swat Valley and where the, the, the terms of that ceasefire are particularly uh, vague in terms of kind of, um, you know, uh, 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 I'm just getting, getting the uh, specifics, but it's something like, you know, a Sharia law will be imposed in Swat including, uh, you know, so quite a quite vague, um, the army will gradually withdraw security forces from the region, but um, that's it. No specifics on, you know, how that will happen, when that will happen. Um, the government and the Taliban will exchange prisoners. That's it. <laughs> so, um, you know, like you can see just by those really brief examples, like it's quite vague um, in terms, you know, compared to say, you know, what was the, the the ceasefire in Sri Lanka, for example, which had those much more specific um, uh, t- uh, t- uh, terms in relation to security control and things like that that I mentioned.
0: Got it. Thank you for introducing us to that um this is obviously a good point to mention to listeners that the book obviously has all the detail about all the pieces so if you're intrigued by the typology um and want and do want all of those details please go read the book
1: <laughs> don't um, let, my, let my total brain fade uh, turn you up
0: <laughs> so. could you walk us through perhaps another example i know i've already asked for a few um Explaining sort of how different actors involved in a ceasefire might use the document for their own ends? Sure.
1: Um, So I'll give you the example of the 2016 cessation of hostilities um, and how that affected rebel and local governance in the south of Syria. So mainly talking about Dara province in the south of the country. So what was really interesting about many things were really interesting about this ceasefire. But what happened uh, was that it was able to reduce violence for a certain amount of time, for a little bit of time, which was was obviously the sort of the the point of a ceasefire. Um, But one interesting thing that the research showed up was that during this sort of supposed lull in overall violence, what happened was there was um, targeted assassinations. unsure by who, the suspected um, maybe ISIS affiliates at least being supported by the regime, but targeted assassinations of local notables, so local sheikhs, local civil society leaders, um Local, like people in the community that were quite well respected, um, and this had a, a real effect um, on the different communities, sort of a, a morale effect on the different communities. But um, in in the, the south of the country, so that's just one um, small example um, of how violence during the ceasefire morphed, um, but. In general, in terms of uh, the local and rebel governance in the south, what was really interesting to see is that um, the ceasefire kind of—it wasn't as simple as that. It sort of was 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 you know as was beneficial to one party and not to another. It was that the ceasefire created um, a type of environment, you know, a wartime order that I call it in the book, where different actors in that space, so they included the courts, the local councils, the sheikhs, um, um, uh, the the non-state actors, so being the armed groups as well, um, humanitarian actors, um, as well as sort of financial um, systems like smuggling routes and things like that. All of those different actors were in some way affected and became recalibrated or their relationship with each other became recalibrated because of the ceasefire and I you know those dynamics were really um are really tricky um to explain and I go into that in a lot more detail in the book um, but basically the the sort of finding and the big takeaway was that um not only did they affect kind of rebel governance which is generally thought of as being by the rebel governance uh, scholars as being kind of solely or primarily related to non-state armed groups. Um, In fact, ceasefires affect them, but they also affect um, all kind of levels of local governance, really, and how those actors are kind of all um, related to each other and how those relationships can be recalibrated because of the ceasefire, basically.
0: Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Um, And I'm glad we've mentioned wartime order. As a key term in the book. Um, thinking about the state side of things for a moment, you mentioned earlier how ceasefires can be used by the state to redefine um, citizenship. And as you talked about, the kind of settling of status uh, aspect of some of the ceasefires. What about in terms of property rights?
1: Yeah, sure. i talk about property rights. So, Similarly, in a way, um, because sort of it, it kind of runs on from the citizenship argument. So because people were displaced under the terms of these agreements, um, what happened was that their homes were then um, in, in some cases, like um, old homes being one of them, for example, their homes have now been reappropriated by the regime Um That's because of sort of, you know, their titles were not kind of 100% legal in the first place because there's a lot of informal housing in Syria, or it could just be because they've been (laughs) permanently displaced under the terms of those agreements, and then they either have their... um, their title to the property with them, but it's of little use, um, and/or they're not, they're, you know they can't come back into regime-controlled areas without you know a massive security risk to themselves. So basically, they've got no rights to that property anymore. And what's happened is then that uh, that property has been reappropriated by the regime or the properties in that area. And then they've been sort of slated for massive uh, redevelopment projects or reconstruction projects as a kind of, which we normally think of as a kind of post-war reconstruction, basically. So in uh, Homs, it's called the Homs Dream Project, which is sort of a large scale project. sort of I guess you'd call it a gentrification or beautification kind of project of um, that area that was sort of once a kind of rebel rebel area that's now becoming kind of become through the reconstruction and the, the seizure of uh, property, um, you know a, a, an area that's more loyal uh, to the regime basically.
0: Got it. Yeah, no. Interesting how those go together. And of course, again, going back to the sensible point right at the beginning, like, of course, if people are forcibly displaced, that has implications for property. But making sure that we kind of include those maybe obvious points in the conversation is really important for kind of what, how we think about this and what the implications are. Um
1: yeah, and I just sort of just to add to that, um, I guess, just for clarity, I mean, I think it's really important, like that that specific term of the ceasefire that I mentioned in terms of settling one status, I mean, that kind of effectively um, facilitates that displacement. And then that, that, that sort of permanent reappropriation of the housing, I think. So I think, mm-hmm. um, you know, I do hesitate in the book to draw these kind of like direct causal effects. But I think in that case, it's, it's kind of it's reasonably clear that the ceasefires are what has caused like actually this quite gross um, structural violence. So while they may have kind of <laughs> decreased uh, the physical violence of the bombing, well, you know, in a way I, I think that there was another academic article wrote, written about um, these types of local ceasefires which where they were deemed like highly successful um, in terms of reducing levels of violence and I think you know, that's that's really true, but I think that's the whole point I'm making is that if we only look at them in terms of their ability to halt violence, we just miss a whole massive part of the picture and that they, you know, yeah, while they may have been really successful in stopping physical violence, the ceasefires themselves have been really structurally violent on these different
0: populations. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And in a similar way, um, I really find your discussion of ceasefires is kind of connecting up a lot of bits that we don't necessarily connect, right? That idea of kind of what type of violence are we looking at? Um, Also, I think an assumption often that ceasefires are sort of temporary, um, short term, but, but then now we're talking about having some really significant long term effects, you talk about in the book that ceasefires bring together macro and micro levels of conflict. And I think we've kind of been dancing around that a little bit, right? You've given us some examples that kind of imply that. Could you talk to this point a bit more about how these different levels come together in a ceasefire? Mm.
1: Yeah, sure. I, I mean, I talk about that most specifically um, in the chapter about how ceasefires can affect um um, areas normally considered the sole purview of the nation state like security and diplomacy um so i'm trying to think sorry i'm trying to think through like the best um example to give you like a really specific but quite um basic example in a way is that um for that case i use um the de-escalation zone agreement um that, uh, that was actually negotiated and agreed to by Russia, Turkey and Iran without um, the Syrian regime being a signatory to that agreement. But it completely establishes a reality in the territory of Syria. So ooh, I found that quite interesting is that basically the diplomatic control of the Syrian regime was was usurped in that case by the the ceasefire being agreed to in their absence, effectively. Um, It's unclear, you know, how much or how little uh, the Syrian regime's, you know, uh, their input onto that that ceasefire agreement. Um, And that ceasefire agreement effectively set up um, for... uh, territorial areas of de-escalation in within uh the, the the territory we know as syria um and then within those different areas uh, it, it, uh, it uh, different things happened but basically now only one of those four areas remains because the ceasefire itself enabled effectively the regime and Russia to retake uh, sort of... um, (sighs) enabled it to focus its concentration specifically on those different areas at different times. And then once it had taken eastern Ghouta, which is one of those areas, the other uh, two areas of the south um, and a small area in Homs fell uh, pretty quickly afterwards. Or well, they agreed to reconciliation agreements because they saw um, sort of what the bombardment that had happened on eastern Ghouta. So the the pressure that uh, was was the retaking of those areas under the t- was effectively enabled by the terms of the ceasefire agreement so that was like a military um a military uh, result uh, direct result of the ceasefire agreement and then in idlib um security control of that area was sort of completely renegotiated particularly turkey's control uh, that it had over that area at that time. Um, That's since changed. uh, That agreement was I think 2017 or 2018 and that's subsequently changed quite a lot with uh, Turkey's um, occupation of the north of the country in the Euphrates Shield area. Um, But basically Turkey still Or did and probably still, to a certain extent, has uh, control or some control or (laughs) a certain amount of control. It's very unclear over um, what's now known as Hayat Tahrir Hashem, which is the non-state armed group that effectively controls um, Idlib. So basically, there's this kind of recalibration of uh, both state control, non-state armed group control, but over the the security control of the territory of Syria, basically that was kind of enabled by the terms of that ceasefire agreement which established these four territorial de-escalation zones.
0: That's I think a really key example um, to kind of make that point of hang on there's stuff happening here that's not just about temporarily ceasing or reducing violence so thank you for taking us through that one. Um, I'd like to kind of ask my next question I suppose in two parts. We've discussed um, sort of the importance of what you're doing here of thinking through these definitions of organizing categorizing different ceasefires understanding sort of the what the pieces of paper are actually doing on the ground what then do you think are some of the policy implications of this work that you're doing on defining ceasefires
1: um i'd like it to have policy <laughs> implications um and i'd like sort of for conflict negotiators and humanitarians and other people that are working in conflict zones, basically I think for me the lessons are, you know, are fairly clear like, I, like I've said to you and I think like you've taken away from the book is that basically ceasefires have a diverse amount of consequences. You know, they're not just, they're, you know, I say it in the book, they're not just a ceasefire. Um, You know, and often those consequences are not always, I don't know, often, they're they're not always at least uh, positive and humanitarian like we often tend to associate with ceasefires, we tend to associate ceasefires and we see that again in Gaza at the moment with calls for a ceasefire, which, you know, I don't deny that that's a terrible amount of human suffering happening there and, you know, a ceasefire is definitely at least the best way so far humans have devised to sort of stop that level of violence but what I, I guess the big policy implication is for me is like don't be blind to the the negative effects uh ceasefires can have um can also have I guess you know and uh, mm-hmm. Speaking of the Gaza context, for example, I mean, you know, there's been talk already of these humanitarian corridors or I think they're calling them humanitarian pauses or something like that that have just been implemented. Um, these sort of four-hour windows that are effectively enabling, you know, forced, dis- again, like mass displacement, you know, I think that probably amounts to forced displacement of people from the north to the south of the country Um during these kind of four-hour windows, basically. So, again, you see a ceasefire that's kind of, um, you know, enabling displacement, and I think it's not um, too unimaginable in that context to sort of see maybe a humanitarian corridor or something of that nature proposed that then funnels uh, people into you know, the Egyptian Sinai or something like that and then creates a kind of situation of permanent displacement for uh, Palestinians. So under the guise of these supposedly humanitarian and beneficial ceasefires, um, what I want to alert people to is often they have really complex uh, dynamics that can happen under under that rubric basically.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Very important to highlight For the second part of my question, then, essentially the same thing, but instead of policy implications, um, what about scholarly ones? (laughs) Um,
1: I think scholarly ones are are what I'd like to see. I guess it's very similar in terms of, I mean, there are definitely more scholars now thinking, which is great, thinking more broadly about uh, the effects these fires can have. So that's um, one thing. And, you know, definitely beyond the Syrian context is another thing. I'd love to see a lot more of, um, you know, and I guess that's the wish of every academic to have their work kind of <laughs> implemented in different scenarios, is I'd love to see other people do really in-depth um, empirical field work, um, if that's possible, Um utilising the typology and seeing if the categories of the typology kind of hold up for whatever conflict um, they're working on, um, that would be um, amazing because obviously in, in the book I only use the typology and relate that to Syria, even though the, top, the typology I should just clarify is based on a reading of I think over 200 um or oh, about 200 different ceasefire agreements that were taken from the PACS um, data set, which comes out of University of Edinburgh. Um, and so, yeah, so that was the typology was based on a reading of large ceasefires, but the empirical work was really um, done uh, mainly just on Syria. So it would be great for scholars to... Um, you know, to test that, the contours of that typology in different scenarios that they're working in. Definitely. I'd love, to, I'd love that.
0: And I'd love to read that. So <laughs> just saying we, we've, we've got two people saying, please, let's have that. Um, Obviously, that gives us a kind of lot of things for policymakers to work on, scholars to work on. You've already mentioned a little bit of what you're working on. Would you like to tell us more about what you're working on now that this book is done?
1: Sure. So yeah, like I mentioned, I'm sort of thinking a little bit about how this work can be applied in the Gaza context um, at the moment. And I've like written also a little bit about that um, sort of lessons from the Syrian ceasefires for Ukraine as well um, during, that, during that conflict. So that's been really, really interesting and really beneficial um, and really thought provoking for me to kind of go through that process and to um, to, to make sure that the research was rigorous enough to for it to be transposed to other conflict environments, which I think it is. Um, so that's been really exciting. There's some of that work available online already. Um, in you know, in a way, thankfully not as academic art, of course, mainly just as blog posts or different things like that. So that's much more accessible for different people as well. Um, but interestingly, there's a couple of other projects I've been working on since sort of the bulk of the research um, for this book finished. And one which was really interesting and a great sort of, I think, advertisement for sort of in-depth, empirical, qualitative research was that when I was interviewing people, um, Syrians with experience of local governance, um, for the ceasefire project, uh, one of the things that they mentioned um just sort of off, you know, not not direct, you know, it wasn't what the main point of the interview, but they just mentioned it as offhand kind of thing, was that how local councils were um, registering births, deaths and marriages um, during rebel control during the time. So when, you know, areas fell outside state control, these different local councils who were now had no link to the state were continuing to uh, register birth, like, life events, basically. And it just got me thinking, like, that's really weird because, you know, usually the state, the nation state is considered the actor with the, the sort of sole ability to grant leap uh, people legal identity basically so that was great in that um so really interesting comment it it basically has spurred about five years of subsequent research um onto um legal identity conferred by um, insurgencies and non-state actors and that's part of a project I'm just kind of tying up now uh, with Bart Clem uh, at the University of Gothenburg funded by the Swedish Research Council um, on that and We've got a big uh, special issue coming out with Citizenship Studies next March um, with about, I think we've got 13 different contributors um, on that. So on that issue in varying different contexts and from varying different um, disciplines and angles. So we're really excited about that. Um, And then currently... I've got this amazing postdoctoral fellowship at Melbourne Law School, um, which looks at uh, it's looking at how people experience the law in the aftermath of um, conflict or revolutionary events. Uh, So, again, I think this has sort of been inspired by the work I did on ceasefires in that I... Where I felt that I really, you know, I didn't, I felt I did justice to my interlocutors in the book and I, you know, I I loved um, engaging with their stories. But what I really wanted to do with this current project is to go a little bit deeper and to um, talk to Syrians who I have a sort of quite a deep. Uh, pre-existing relationship with in a more anthropological way and to kind of really draw out um, some of their experiences of the law both in Syria and then sort of subsequently in um, countries where where they're now finding themselves or either settled or just have been displaced to um, and to find out how the law sort of can be Violent um, in different scenarios. You know, it might seem obvious that the Assad regime can be violent and has used the law violently in many ways, but um, possibly less obvious that you know the German state <laughs> uses its or the Australian state. Um, uses law in violent ways, but that's that you know that can be the case in terms of its resettlement policies or making people wait, you know, so long to find out whether they um, have been granted um, humanitarian visa and things like that. So, um, only about six months into that project, but really excited to sort of go into some new literature and um, yeah, so that's that's a new project and the really kind of. Uh, yeah, it feels like it's sort of uh, in my head, it's all very much on a tra- trajectory, but I don't know if for other people it, it, it looks like that anyway. Yeah.
0: I mean, I think it does to me. Um, thank you for sharing that with us. They they honestly sound really fascinating. Um, so ho- hopefully, at least some of them become books, so we can have you back. Um, but of course, in the meantime, while you're off working on the cool projects, listeners can read the book we've been discussing again, titled "Redefining Ceasefires, Wartime Order, and State Building in Syria," published by Cambridge University Press. Marika, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast.
1: Uh, so enjoyable. Thanks, Miranda. Really, really happy to do it.